Uh, and then there's you know lots of these local businessmen from Liverpool and Glasgow, the traders, they started lobbying Whitehall because they want the government to take more controls and to establish this Niger Coast Protectorate, which really was sort of established to better regulate and control this large trade in palm oil um, that was coming through both Calabar and the Niger Delta, which you know today is also a really important trade area because it you know it's it's also very rich in petroleum. So there's about two million barrels of petroleum a day that are extracted from the area, and it still has billions of reserves of, of billions of barrels. It's also a region that is known for its unparalleled ecological richness of biodiversity. So the current day oil spills and um, you know are really quite problematic. That, that on the one hand they feed the economy of Nigeria, but on the other hand they are also destroying the environment. But so in that period, the Niger Coast Protectorate wanted to secure the trade for palm oil. So, did they sign a treaty with the rulers of the Kingdom of Benin, or were they, the rulers of Benin holding out on that? Yeah. So, originally in 1862, there's uh, the, Her Majesty's consul at the time, which was Richard Burton. He tried to convince the Oba to sign a treaty, but he didn't want to sign. Um, which then sort of um, so what they wanted is he really was sent at the request of these traders from Liverpool and Glasgow to try and convince the Oba, who was the king of Benin City, to help them control the Esekiri, who, Esekiri, who were a neighbouring kingdom who really controlled the rivers, uh, such as the Benin River and the Niger River Delta area, so that this trade of palm oil would be less onerous and less dangerous. But at the time, the Oba did not want to sign the contract. It's quite interesting how Burton writes about the kingdom. So he sort of says that in the 1860s, the kingdom seems to, seems to be in a quite a difficult position because in the 1820s, it's described as a city that is really thriving and the royal court is, you know, sort of they really um, have a big position of power. While in the 1860s, Burton describes it as in decay, that's in a difficult position, um, that lots of the tributary states are no longer paying their tributes. So um, he does still say that there's a lot of amazing riches, but their real interest is in trying to see how can they get, you know, sort of the palm oil trade to be less uh, difficult. And the Oba doesn't want to sign the treaty originally in 1862. Yeah, but in 1896, the king at the time is Oba uh, Ovon Ramwen, and he did sign a treaty with the British. So what did that treaty say? Yeah, I think that was 1892 when, so that treaty um, comes at a time when um, on the British side, there's this new consul general in charge and he has these vice consuls and one of them is called Captain Galway. And Galway, again, sort of, you know, gets lots of complaints from local traders because they're saying the Oba, he just keeps shutting off the palm oil trade. And Galway then, like Burton, goes to Benin City talks to the Oba and he somehow convinces him to agree to a treaty in which the Oba effectively signs away his rights and puts his kingdom under the protectorate of the queen. And somehow Galway was able to convince him to, or to let his chiefs sign the document. But in some, um, so the way that Galway writes about it, it sounds like the chief didn't really, wasn't really told the whole truth of what he was signing. So it sounds like he just keeps saying, is it a peace or is it war? And then Galway says, no, no, it's peace. 
And some of the things that Galway writes later also is that he says um, that the Oba apparently would have said, you know, while the great white queen is a ruler of the seas, I am still the ruler of the land. So it sounds like he just thinks that it's a peace treaty, not one where he's signing away his sovereignty. No, and that's also kind of from his actions later in the next five years, you know, up to the you know, the punitive campaign. He keeps interfering with the trade, prohibiting you know, palm oil and rubber to be traded. So it looks like he didn't really feel like he signed up to any treaties. So meanwhile, the British think, well, hang on, we've we've got this guy, you know, now because he signed this treaty and he's got no real rights. But he um he he doesn't seem to be delivering what the British thought he was going to deliver. And so there's a guy called James Phillips who was deputy commissioner and consul of the the Niger Coast Protectorate. So he tried to make the king comply, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. And, and and actually before him, sort of, because he's, he's just a deputy consul, but the consul general of the Niger Coast Protectorate, so Ralph Moore, he was convinced that the Oba needed to be removed as he was interfering too much with his trade. But he does not get permission from Whitehall, from London, uh, from his superiors in London to attack the kingdom. And then in the time that Moore goes on annual leave, his deputy consul, James Phillips, he decides it's time for action. And he had written to the government actually in October 1896 already to say that he wanted to, the Oba should be toppled, um, that there's only one way to dispose of the King of Benin from this stool. And he asked for permission to actually go in there with 400 soldiers. But he does not get that agreement. However, because it's Christmas time by the time this letter arrives in uh, Whitehall, um, and only in January he he the the PM says no. Uh, but Phillips doesn't wait for that response, and he just goes out there and he lets the Oba know that he's going to go and wants to talk about the treaty and why the Oba is not keeping to the treaty. Um, and and what's the and... idea actually? Do you think Laura to kill Oba? So it doesn't say it doesn't really say that he wants to kill the Oba, but it does say that he needs to be dethroned. And um, you know the way that they describe the Oba around that time is very much that he's sort of seen as a demon in human form, and um, they really see him as somebody who needs to be deposed and transported elsewhere. So you know, sort of brought into exile. All right, and stop getting um, in the way of the trade by the sounds yes. of it. Yeah, I've got yeah. Dr. Laura Van Brockhoven here, director of the Pitt Rivers Museum at Oxford University, and we're talking about well, it's the raising of uh, Benin City in 1897, and the consequential uh, well looting and the uh, Benin bronzes being taken away. So, so Phillips is sort of given no. To Oba saying, look, I'm, I'm coming in. I, we need to have a chat about this treaty. But as Philip's party gets closer to Benin City, they get a message. And what does this message say? Yeah, so the Oba tells him to actually, uh, he's not welcome at this moment. His party and him are not welcome at the moment because the Oba is very busy with a festival and he needs to wait a couple of months. So this festival is the Uki Agwe uh, festival, which requires the Oba to, so it's a sort of festival of yams, which was a very important festival. And the Oba has to, um, you know, so he has to um, not receive any foreigners. He has to observe certain cultural practices. He has to fast. So he said, you know, you're not welcome at the moment, but we can talk at a later date. 
but Phillips you know, doesn't seem to um, care very much. So he just continues on. He's also starting to receive messages from local tradesmen and from the king of the Isekiri, actually, of the um, of this other neighboring kingdom that continuing would mean certain death. But he just carries on with his party um, under the consul general's flag, sort of seeming to say that he has the permission of the um, of the of his superiors to go. Um, he's having dinner still, and he, he feels quite confident that he can just go. Um, but he then gets uh, ambushed um, and killed. And so seven of the nine of his party, which you know, sort of included certain officials, but also local tradesmen, uh, or, or some of these tradesmen of um, uh, Liverpool and Glasgow, they get ambushed and they get killed. Right. So seven of them are killed. And is this by, by uh, people from ben, Benin Empire? Yes, from the Edo Kingdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it looks like it's not re- really certain whether the Oba himself said that he should be killed. It might be some of the some of his important chiefs that actually decide because they see the party just coming, even though I've been told not to come and even though I've been warned that they would be killed as a sort of act of war. And so Phillips has been given this, as you say, this really clear warning that please don't come. Mm-hmm. We're having this festival, can't receive yeah. you. He's told you, you're going to cop it if you come, but he does. But I'd imagine that the nuances of that story probably don't make their way back to Britain. There must have been uh, immense anger and maybe a desire for retribution when this news came out in England. Yeah, absolutely. It takes a little bit of time for the news to get to London, but then two people actually do get away from the party. They're able to send um, news. And then in the Times and in the Telegraph, they report about a terrible disaster and a deplorable catastrophe of uh, catastrophe. And then around this time, which was a year also that the uh, Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee was being uh, sort of celebrated, the public opinion in England was one that had become more and more racialized also. So um, a lot of the reporting about the Benin Kingdom had been how that it was, you know, that they were fetish worshippers and that the Oba was diabolical and fanatical. There was a lot of emphasis that actually um, they were fervent human sacrificers and that, yeah, one could say that sort of the British should actually also do something about it to you know, sort of bring civilization and confront this barbarism. So that that's very much within that sort of context that a lot of the newspapers are reporting on the ambush and the, and the killing and the massacre, as they call it, of, of sort of uh, the Benin massacre. And so some new newspapers do ask about how strange that he would have gone so unprepared because they know that the Benin, you know, the Edo military is a really important military um, and they, you know, so that's some of the sort of newspapers do also comment on that. That's kind of strange. And more experienced people even put it in their opinion pieces that it uh, was madness to have gone in with such little preparation. But nonetheless, you know, um, they actually do feel outraged and a fleet is prepared to sail to the Niger Delta. And it's clear that the OPA. Um, you know, this was a declaration of war. That's how it's sort of seen. So this time they are definitely going to be trying to kill uh, King Oba if they weren't the first time. You'd imagine they would yeah, definitely so, be doing so, it this time. Yeah, so I don't know if the killing the Oba was the main goal. It was much more they needed to make sure that actually he was dethroned and that the kingdom would no longer be interfering with the trade. Um, so how big was so the in, force that got sent to Benin City? 
So it was quite a large force. It was uh, 1,200 armed men. Uh, and then I think there's a double as many carriers also. In those carriers, they would you know, carry all the uh, materials that were needed, obviously. But they also, there's so the, so the person who becomes the main, um, you know, sort of admiral who leads the troops, he is quite conscious that it's quite a dangerous area for them to go in because of this fever that, you know, everybody who goes there almost get so that he knows that it needs to be quite quick and not too many people because then they would die also often on the way back because of the malarial fever. Um, so they needed to be swift and uh, more than not more than two or three weeks. So that's why they needed enough people. And I think what's really important is also the guns that they're taking uh, with them because there's been a new gun had been introduced in the 1880s or 1890s, I think, in the army, the Maxim gun, which is sort of the first fully automatic um, um, weaponry. Um, and that they take with them, and that helps them to give the, an itch on you know, sort of making sure that they are able to conquer the city. So does the expedition go straight for Benin City, or does it cause destruction everywhere it goes as it travels towards it? It um, it's yeah. So one of the because the the um, the way that the territories are there is that actually it's really hard to see um, what is alongside the river. So they go on the river, and there's a sort of three pronged approach because there's different. So because the, the Oba knew that they would be coming from the south, um, and he sort of takes a part of the people from the south, a part from the east and a part from the west and tries to approach from different, but the main group of people are coming from the, via Alokbo. And uh, it takes several days to reach Benin City. And so in those days, which takes in total about 10 days before they're really there, there's a lot of shooting happening uh, you know, with these machine guns, with the Maxim uh, machine gun. Um, so there's some reports about how there were already lots of, you know, people being killed on the way, but it, you know, the main goal was obviously the city. And did um, the king's warriors or fighters put up a good fight or was it just impossible to do anything against these Maxim guns? Yeah, so it sounds like there are, um, so, um, you know, there's not that much written, obviously, from the from the Benin side, but um, there are some of the British soldiers, they do say that they were really uh, fierce fighters um, and that they put up a really good fight, but then Apart from the Maxim gun, um, and, and, you know, a lot of the guns, so the weaponry, I understand from um, the Edo Kingdom, was partly still sort of Portuguese um, or almost antique weaponry, you could say. Uh, but they were really skilled fighters. Uh, but then they had taken also a number of rocket-propelled missiles, and those were, you know, once they're in Benin City, they're able to fire that at the Royal Palace. And that's also when the Edo military seems to flee because they can see how they can never compete with that technology. Yeah. Dr Laura van Brokhoven is here, Director of the Pitt Rivers Museum at Oxford University. So it was today, uh, Laura, February the 18th, 1897, that the British got there and took the city. Uh, was anything left of it by the time they were done? Yeah, so um, there's um, there was uh, so there was a lot of looting that happened during. You know, so once they're in, they go into the royal palace and they find these incredible treasures in the palace. And 
Um, and at that time, that's where the, you know, sort of the senior offers had their first pick, and then some spectacular objects such as you know ivory tusks and uh, leopards, metal leopards. They were reserved for the queen. Um, but so so there's a, there's a lot of looting happening uh, during the period that the sort of you know they go into the city um, and the Edo military has um, left. Um, but there's also a big fire that happens a couple of days after, um, which there's a, there's some doubt whether that was um, caused by the British or not, because that was a practice that was practiced. But it looks like they're actually quite surprised because some of the loot actually even burns there. Um, so the city is still, you know, this, there's still a royal court today. Um, there's still, um, you know, an Oba today. So it's not as if the whole city um, or, or the whole kingdom doesn't exist anymore. But the then Oba has to go into, uh, he has to flee. Um, he has to go into exile. Uh, so there's a lot happening that really sort of, and especially the the way the whole a royal court was sacked really meant that um, all the historical documents you could say because lots of these um, objects were also um, recording the history of Benin City were just um, yeah taken away. And so what happened to King Oba? So the Oba has so he first he flees uh, and then he returns to the city to in in August. So this all happened, you know, on this day, 127 years ago. But then a number of months later, he comes back and then he's sent into um, into exile. Um, and the longer term impact, Laura, on the Kingdom of Benin. I mean, you said it still uh, sort of exists today, but uh, I, I imagine this must have been a, a huge blow, and it would have been nothing like ever again, like it was before this. Yeah, exactly. It's a really a, it's a devastating, obviously. So the looting of the city meant that many historical documents were taken, all the art, the religious paraphernalia, um, the royal um, regalia were all taken. And then six years after the looting, obviously, Nigeria becomes independent from uh, the British Empire. Uh, but the kingdom does still continue and it has sort of its own status still. Um, but you know, it was it never returned to its former splendor, and it especially didn't have this control over trade anymore, which obviously, as we know, you know, is is the is the big way of of, of accumulating power and wealth is when you can control trade. Yeah. So, Laura, I've seen photos of some of the British sitting on these huge piles of loot in what's left of Benin City back in 1897. How soon did some of the the bronzes begin to turn up in British museums? Yeah, very quickly, um, because uh, sort of lots of soldiers started selling their objects to private collectors or they started selling them at auctions. And actually the British Museum, for example, part of the official loot went to the British Museum in you know, even before 1897, the, the, the year had come to a close. 203 of the pieces that were sort of kept apart for the foreign office because they were supposed to. So what would happen is that you know, part of the loot would be kept to pay for the punitive campaign, the cost of the punitive campaign that would go to the foreign office. To, uh, and some of that actually came into the British Museum. Um, and then in Germany and all across the world, actually, people were really keen to have some of these Benin um, collections. So we call them Benin bronzes, but that's actually a misnomer because 
you know, the collections are really made out of all kinds of, uh, one, they're not made out of bronze, but they're actually made out of brass. You know, bronze is made from tin and copper, but brass is made of zinc and copper. And uh, second, also, they're really you know, objects from all kinds of objects. They're uh, made out of um, coral, they're made out of wood, they're made out of ceramics, they're made out of ivory. So, you know, it's a sort of collective now, you know, collective way of talking about them as the Benin bronzes. But um, they are very sought after by museums. And so, for example, in Germany, the uh, Berlin Ethnologisches Museum, the ethnological collections, they started aggressively collecting these objects from Benin, as did many other museums. And in fact, because so many of the material was sold by so many different soldiers who all took their bit uh, as part of the plundering, the objects really go all over the world, you know, sort of including in New Zealand, in Brazilian museums. Um, and there's this great initiative led by Barbara Plankensteiner, who's the director of the of the Mark Museum in Hamburg, called the Digital Benin, which is funded by Siemens. And they have, in the last couple of years, brought together, you know, sort of this digital platform where all the materials that were looted are being brought together um, by museums like the Peter Rivers Museum, who are current holding institutions. There's 136 of them that have sort of offered their catalogs to bring together all the different databases. So anyone who's interested in seeing what was, um, you know, originally um, in Benin. Um, can see, you know, how incredibly beautiful these objects are. Yeah, I've had a look at some of the pictures and some of them are absolutely stunning. But I know the many British uh, experts reckoned that the locals couldn't possibly have made them because they were so nice. So there was, um, <laughs> yes, quite a bit of uh, yeah. putting, putting the local artisans down, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And that was very much part of that, what I was talking about earlier, that, you know, people wrote about them about the kingdom as that it you know it, that it was such a you know horrible place actually and um and also the thinking at the time was very much very racist around how in Africa these things could never have been produced so they would either be you know compared to Egypt and ancient Egypt or they would be said actually that actually you know sort of completely different people would have brought those objects there because it could never have been people there locally um, because you know the 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 you know these these royal regalia you know staffs necklaces bracelets rings beautiful bells metal cast you know sort of jaguars that look incredibly lifelike they're so so beautiful brass plaques that really document the whole history of all the different obas and important figures of the royal court. So, you know, this is just an incredible showcasing of some, you know, one of the biggest empires of, of Africa. Um, but that just couldn't, um, you know, people just couldn't compute that. It's sort of like this cognitive dissonance that existed, like, but this couldn't have come out of Africa because people had been told how, um, you know, this was a kingdom that was, um, that was mostly um, the monocle. Mm. Yeah, yeah, demonical, yeah. So, Laura, when did calls begin to have the bronzes uh, returned? Yeah, very early on um, already because um, clearly, you know, the, the, the kingdom was not in agreement with all of these objects being taken. It was also against, you know, sort of lots of international treaties that had been signed at the time that you weren't allowed to in 1897. That was you know, quite late. You weren't allowed to do this kind of 
um, taking uh, in the way that you know people have been taking, um, really chiseling off houses, etc., um, objects. So, um, but then the first um, real claims that come in is already at the independence of Nigeria, and then. Um, in the 70s and 80s, there's uh, there's um, you know calls from the OBA, and then in the 1990s, there's a letter that goes out, but more but they were usually quite general um, to all the different museums that had uh, in the UK, for example, that had um, objects. So uh, that's a sort of general request that was sent out by the OBA, but none of the museums at the time really saw that as a possibility, I suppose, or even an option, because they felt at that time within the sort of preservation logic that uh, African African countries would not be able to take care of their own materials, which was really problematic, obviously. But but that is very much the way that um, these claims are being received. Um, and then I suppose in other, I remember still in the nineteen nineties and the two thousands when I started my career in museums that it was very much said in other European countries, like in the Netherlands where I used to work, it was said, yeah, but the British Museum has to be the first one because many of us bought from, you know, sort of from the British. So the British Museum first has to go. And then knowing that there was an act actually that keeps the British Museum from being able to repatriate, which is the British Museum Act. Uh, which says that they can't repatriate. So, and all of that has changed in the last, yeah, you could say, you know, 10 years, but um, where there's been a lot of change happening actually towards this. And for us in the Pit Rivers Museum, the official claim that came from the OB, from not from the OBA, but from NCMM, which is the Nigerian uh, Commission of Museums and Monuments, was in January 2022. And, and so, that's around yeah. the same time as many museums start getting official claims. Yeah. Uh, what will your museum be doing? So what um, we have a procedures uh, through which we're, we've put the... Um, so we're part of the University of Oxford, and so the university's council has to decide whether objects are returned. And uh, we, we received our claim in January 2022, um, it was done, then taken through our procedures, which means that it goes to our board of visitors. They give recommendations. They gave recommendations to return those objects, which were 97 objects from the collections of the Pit River, that were they're stewarded in the Pit Rivers and in the Ashmolean Museum to be returned. That then went to council and council also um, gave the recommendation to return. It then had to go to the charity commission because that's how charities, lots of universities are charities in the UK, are governed and the Charity Commission um, has asked us for more information. In the meantime, I don't know if you want all of this because it's quite technical, but um, there's been some changes in um, Nigeria where um, the outgoing president sort of sent out a notice that actually the OBA should be the one asking for objects to be returned and that's where a lot of us had to pause our processes because we're not certain entirely of how so there's a lot of uh, of paperwork that still needs to be gone through laura have any gone back to nigeria yes actually um both um aberdeen and jesus college in cambridge have physically returned a number of bronzes a cockerel and a bronze head 
the Smithsonian has returned objects from their collection. I think that was in 2022, March or so, quite early. And then Germany has um, the different states that govern the German collections and cities in Germany. They've actually returned about over 1,000. So, and this is um, at the request actually of NCMM at the time. They didn't ask us to immediately transfer all of the objects physically because they need to build infrastructure to hold the objects. But um, what they wanted us to do, um, so many of the museums to do, is to transfer ownership, the legal ownership of the bronzes, and then keep them on loan. And that, for example, was done uh, at the Horniman. So a number of objects went back physically, but many of them has, have sort of the ownership has been um, transferred. Um, so yeah. that actually, you know, it's much more like a is common practice in museums that yeah, you would have. still a, quite a, a complicated uh, setup, though, and I, I have noticed yeah. that there's a new planned uh, Edo Museum of West African Art, which is uh, hopefully going to be established in Nigeria to house, uh, well, the pieces of, of art that do get uh, to get returned. Laura, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Nightlife in This Week in History to tell us the story of how so many of these beautiful pieces of art from Benin ended up in these museums all over the world. You're very welcome. Uh, Dr. Laura Van Broekhoven is Director of the Pitt Rivers Museum, which is based at Oxford University. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.